0: That's stamps.com. Code program.
1: Matt Letizia was the ultimate local hero. Great film, by the way. Thank you for calling Nox Island Gas. Matt loved that rabbit. It had a name. It had two names. Okay, enough. Simply exquisite talent. Matt could have played for any team in England, really, truthfully, for any team in Europe, but instead opted to stay at Southampton during his whole career. Why? Well, listen to part one and part two, which comes next Monday, and you'll find out. In the first part, Matt explains his Enid Blyton-esque childhood on Guernsey, how much it formed him and shaped his attitudes for the rest of his life, his passion for cricket, the art of penalty taking, and that moment when, almost as if it was scripted, he scored the last ever goal at the Dell before Southampton moved to St Mary's. This episode was made possible by Nordoff Robbins. We met Matt on a glorious afternoon in London before the Nordoff Robbins annual football fundraising dinner in London. It's a charity that all of us at The Big Interview would like you to think about. Nordoff Robbins delivers music therapy to change the lives, to change the experience of vulnerable children and adults across the UK. As always, this Big Interview podcast is free, but if you think that this chat is worth a pound or more, please do go to www.nordoff-robbins.org.uk then hit donate. For the moment, just luxuriate in Matt Atissier. Sensational footballer. Substantial, warm, interesting man. Enjoy. I, I suppose I start the same way all the time because this is what it makes me sincerely feel. It's a privilege to meet you and to be able to chat Soccer with you, thank you, Um, Matthew. To say because you had gifts that so few people in football over my entire lifetime (laughs) possessed, and used them brilliantly. We're here in the Grosvenor Hotel. You can explain how you did it all. One of the things that stands out to me that I want to ask you about is um, football for the pure joy of playing it, inventing things. Football for the pure joy. Of making people happy and a spectacle. I think that was part of your attitude to the sport over your career. True? Did it help you?
2: Yeah, 100%. uh, 100% true. I always knew that I was given a gift that that I could play football pretty well and I always knew I wanted it to be my my job. But I knew it was an entertainment industry and for me going out and, and trying things trying different things that other people couldn't do that weren't brave enough to try and do, was one of the things that gave me the buzz about going out on a match day and doing things that would make an entire stadium get on their feet and give you a round of applause. It, it, was, just a, it was just the most fantastic feeling for me to see a, kind of a stadium erupt just because of something I've just done with a football.
1: One of the things that makes us feel satisfied about choice of guests is when so many of our guests use phrases that have come up before in the interviews without me having to prompt them and bravery is one because I've always been um, entranced by uh, uh, the idea that amongst British footballers we've always had a set, certain sense of bravery that would be about against the odds or physicality mm. or in the old days I don't know if you remember maybe Liverpool going and playing away and dominating Europe but you so having to knock somebody's jaw <laughs> socket and order but, But you're talking about an entirely different type of bravery Mm. Risk taking, creativity, Mm. trying something Showing for the ball when you're not sure if you're informed form Or you're not sure if someone's going to clog you from back And ruin your your Achilles (laughs) Talk talk to me, why did you use that word bravery And and did you feel the risk or did it stimulate you?
2: The risk stimulated me Um, I liked being that person that will take a chance Being that person that will do something a little bit different That will make him stand out from all the other people that was kind of one of the, the things about football that I loved. And it was one of the things, really, that I've got um, my youth team manager at Southampton, Dave Merrington, uh, I have a lot to thank him for because he saw that in me and he didn't try knocking it out of me. He could see what I could do with the ball. He saw what I could do in training and he didn't shackle me in any way when I was in the youth team at Southampton to try and knock that out of me. Uh, and I'll be eternally grateful to, to him for that because it meant that I could grow... <laughs> and not play football with any fear. Um, And that was kind of one of my biggest strong points in my career, I think. Because football is a fearful industry, right? It's a fearful industry because people are fearful of losing. But I think sometimes in the the midst of it all, I think people somewhere along the line have forgotten that people pay good money to come and watch the game. And for me, it's an entertainment industry and people want to go away feeling good that they've seen something that's kind of made them feel joyous and yes that is their team winning but it goes a little bit deeper than that or,
1: or even drained you know, yeah. you know if you've been yeah. exuberant and you haven't won but you've come close or you, you want the full you want the gamut full of human emo- absolutely. emotions
2: absolutely full gamut of emotions is exactly right and I, I mean even now I go to I go and watch Southampton play and there are games when I come away, <laughs> and I think I've actually played in the game because my I'm like drained at the end of it. Really? you still games. get the
1: adrenaline of a, whoa, whoa, whoa. You so you get the adrenaline of a fan who's never had your talent or your life. You don't view it differently because you, you've succeeded and been you know elite. You, you still feel like the ordinary fan.
2: I, I view it differently when I'm watching a game of football that doesn't involve my team. So when I'm watching a game on Soccer Saturday, I, I view it. Not from the side of just Analytically. looking at, at one team, yeah. So I kind of I look at it from a very neutral point of view and I can kind of judge how both teams have played, whether one team maybe deserves to win more than another team. When I'm watching Southampton, <laughs> I, it tends to kind of go out the window. That's probably one of the reasons why we're not allowed to watch our own team on Sunday yeah. Saturday anymore. But when I go to St Mary's and I'm watching a game, I, I'm fully involved in it. And, and when a goal is going to be scored, I kind of see things in a game and I know when it's going to be a really good chance and I know kind of when it's going to be a goal. And I often find myself being the first one uh, and I'm only in the director's box at Southampton now. I'm normally the first one out my seat. On your feet, because you've known Because I know it's coming. That's wonderful. And, I, and, I'm, the, and I'm the one that stood there just waiting to go. And it's, uh, it, I just get involved in it. I love it.
1: I'm in a habit of just asking what I'm curious about. She said you were given a gift. So before we go into sort of theology or religion or anything <laughs> like that, if I asked you how, how far would you have got in your life with just your natural talent, would I be right in speculating that not as far? Because I have the inkling that all great players of your talent, almost all of them, have, have practised to a huge oh, yeah. degree at some stage in their life. And I don't really mean
2: training sessions. No, I, I, you're absolutely right. I practice as a kid. I can just remember... Having a football at my feet A lot of the time mm. A lot of the time I mean when the summer months came round I was playing cricket And it was a cricket ball For, for the whole of the summer um, But during the football season I, I played a lot with my friends Around the estate that I lived on If there was nobody around I'd create little games for myself You, you had to have an imagination About like where the goal might be or... Yeah yeah So I had, a, I had a, at my house uh, Just outside my front door I had an area where I could throw A tennis ball against the wall and I would come back off the wall, and I'd chest and volley against the back of the shed of next door's house. So it was we, you know, we lived in a terrace house, and the, the back of their shed backed onto our front patio. Mm-hmm. So I just I can remember it in detail now. There was like a couple of lines. It was split into thirds. The back of the shed, that the line down and the line down. So there was three parts, and I'd throw the ball up, and I'd make sure that it never went in the middle one because that's where the goalkeeper was stood, mm-hmm. and it was always. I'd go for the bottom corners uh, each time. And you'd be challenging yourself to make sure you did it. it yeah, it, it... absolutely. So I would stand there. I, 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 li- I can remember playing games like, right, I'm going to throw 10 balls against that wall, and I'm going to chest and volley it, and if I get 9 out of 10 in those two side thirds, I'm going to be a professional footballer. Mm. And that's the game that I'd play with myself. Mm. And just, just little things like that, really, and just invent games.
1: When recently w- making a film... I'd- great privilege of speaking to Andres Iniesta again. I asked him about if you remember the goal in 2009 at Stamford Bridge where the first leg Chelsea against Barcelona has been 0-0. And Essien has scored for Chelsea and to the last seconds with Hiddink in charge of um, Chelsea, it's been Chelsea in the final in Rome. And uh, the ball comes to the back edge of the Chelsea box and instead of dribbling, Messi lays a nice carpet ball pass an and he shoots and scores and beats check the top corner, right? I mistakenly thought, great players have got this computer, sort of Mission Impossible brain assessing space and trajectory and <laughs> all. That. And he went, I didn't think about anything. The ball came to me, I knew I had to score and I just kicked it. And he explained that, that when you work as hard as they do on their skills, it's just automatic. Mm. To, to what extent does that apply to the special things you could do with the ball?
2: Yeah, I, I think there are times in foot matches where I did things which were completely and utterly automatic and I actually, to the point of sometimes I would do something in the game and it would be televised and I'd have to go back and watch the game <laughs> to work out how I'd got the other side of the defender because in the in the moment I'd done something and i got the other side of him and I didn't really know what I'd done and so I, I'd watch it back on the TV and go, ah, oh okay that's how I did it I shifted the ball there and there and I went but in the moment it happens so quickly and you just do it automatically you you just don't think about it
1: see one of the things in preparing for this one of the things that I'm not being rude to other people but I found found cliched and boring was a lot of talk and obsession about whether during your career you were an Olympic athlete or not I look at, I'm, I met Sudan, I've met Zidane, I've met Valorant, I don't know how much you were able to watch Valorant. Mm, yeah, not a lot. I, I, I meet you now, I watched you during your career, and physically your size, in terms of height and broadness of shoulders and whatever, links you a lot, and I think that it's obviously a, a, a great advantage because it's a very physical sport, which mm. I think most spectators and probably most journalists don't understand that it's a very physical sport. Yeah. But your balance and the things you've just been talking about doing, that's not all what you did with your feet. Movement and being able to judge space and, mm. and when to turn somebody or... If you're dribbling, you, you need enormous physical coordination, self-confidence that, again, a lot of footballers, in my view, mm. don't
2: have. Yeah. Correct me if I'm wrong. About yeah, this. no, I, I've always, always found that I was able to... Uh, my balance was always very good. Not just that; I was able to feel where my defenders of their body weight was. The body weight meaning center of gravity. To so their center or which of gravity to, to know which way they could turn quickly and which way they can't turn. How quickly. did you? Know,
1: how did that come to you? Have you never analysed it
2: ever? No, not really. I, I kind of just—I couldn't even to this day. I'm, I'm thinking about it now, uh, and I can picture myself lining up a defender one-on-one and using my body. To get him to shift his body weight, but yes. I know where I'm going. And once his body weight shifted, and I go the other way, I just know that kind of if I do something, he's going to react to it. But I know once I've done it and he's reacted, I'm off. Because I wasn't the quickest, I guess I had to, I had to hone that skill better than most people yes. to be able to get me away from people. You
1: see, it was, because you didn't watch yourself apart from when you're watching back on TV. You may be unaware because everybody talks about. the the jouissance moment about like the flick or the power or the distance or the pass and you go to the tip of the iceberg. What I always really enjoyed was the elegance, whether something came off or not, whether it went in the goal. I I liked, you're selling a proposition it's almost like a a magician with sleight of hand you're like, Mm. here look at this and now I've done a trick here. Mm. And and I think that's a priceless gift.
2: Mm. I think that was kind of one of the things that I was able to Uh, to do probably better than than most people because a lot of people who had pace kind of didn't really need to hone that skill because they just knocked the ball past them and just go. And I didn't have that, so I had to find a different way of of getting past people. And that was kind of one of the things. One of the things that helped me with that also was what I did practice a lot as a kid was working on my first touch. Mm -hmm. And when the ball came to me, I knew 98 times out of 100... My first touch, I could put that ball wherever I wanted it to go to give me the best chance of beating a defender, making a pass, giving myself space. And kind of that first touch allied with the kind of ability to be able to move people's body weight and shift their centre of gravity was kind of the thing that kind of stood me apart a little bit, I think.
1: We're talking about innate ability and and things you worked on to complement that. One of the... well, probably, you permitting, speak a lot about Glenn Hoddle, about whom I've got... I'll be open, I have very mixed views but if you grew up idolising him as a sportsman, as a footballer and Neil snorted at me when, when we shared this story because he says everybody and it, it is true, I've interviewed Leo Messi and I heard him say, better players than me and they dropped out so it's a repetitive story but there was a better player than me, every generation, every club every country said, and apparently one of your brothers, I think Carl <laughs> you've said, right. Better than me,
2: so let's see if I ever admitted to him. Being ah, okay, sorry, Carl. I, it, I think what I said was he, he was, was shaking equally, his head as soon as I good.
1: <laughs> But but, but so I had in other two words,
2: who were who, who should have
1: been who were excellent, but you weren't the fully formed Matthew Matuidi, aged eight, nine, 10, 11, talented, but no. not like you are. So, to what extent, watching Hoddle, doing the things you've just been talking about himself, did that? add to your vision or your confidence or your yes I can do that because my idol does it or, yeah
2: oh, oh, very much so very much so obviously back in the days when I was growing up we didn't see every every team every weekend on the TV so you would only get little glimpses of it but you know when Spurs were the team that were on match of the day that evening you know I was glued to the television and I literally would just watch him mm. and whenever he was involved in a move I'd watch what he could do and see the England games were on the TV when he was playing for England and so all the, the long-range passing, the fact that he just made the game look so easy with his first touch, he kind of just, it was all almost mesmerising for me to watch him play football. She would soak it up, and as well as, because I don't think we're talking about something as simple
1: as, I'm going to copy that, I'm wondering if it gave you licence to dare, to take risks,
2: to, oh, to yeah. be creative. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I, watching him do things at that level, and you know, even at an international level, gave me the belief that he's doing it at that level I can do it at the level yeah. I am at and still be doing it when I get there yeah. and that was kind of a big deal for me to watch him he had that fabulous season where he scored you know over 20 goals and you know a lot of them were outside the box curled into top corners volleys from outside the box it was just a stunning season for him
1: and you didn't know it at the time but he was training at Spurs exactly the way you were training in the Terrace Houses with the mm. tennis ball and the goals because at Spurs they had all the big concrete walls in the gym with a square and a triangle and hit there for points and take it, volley it, yeah. give
2: it back. It, you were actually... Yeah, you know, it's kind of one of those things you just do as a, as a kid. You know, I loved football and I just wanted to get good at it and better at it. I knew I was good, but I wanted to get better. So did England lose a very good wicketkeeper? keeper? I was all right as a wicketkeeper. <laughs> no, no, they, I was you, a better batsman. I need more details. Ah, I need more a, details. What you don't
1: know is that the very first podcast that we did was with Carrie Neville, and we talked cricket because Richie Benno had just died, and we were both touched and, and affected by a truly great mm. man, <laughs> great cricketer, great captain, great commentator. Great man, I think you could go yeah, absolutely. so far. We were really moved by his yeah. departure. Mm. And uh, we talked a little bit of cricket and some other ones, but we ended up with Phil Neville, who was facing West Indian pacemen in the Lancashire semi-pro league, age 10-11, at his mum and dad's insistence, <laughs> without a helmet. Wow. Oh, yeah, was It was. And, and therefore, cricket is something I've always loved. So I'm interested if you're a better batsman. I'd like to know about it. I remember that John Arlott, one of the great voices I grew up, Ended up living down by you in, in the Channel Islands.
2: Yeah.
1: something from cricket, I want to know about Guernsey and growing up and, and what sport in the
2: Channel Islands yeah, it was like for you then. But yeah. tell me a bit about cricket. I loved my cricket as well. Probably back in those days, it was, it was probably only very close behind football. Goodness me. Yeah, very close. I had a good eye, I had good coordination, so I had good eye coordination. I saw the ball really well uh, when I batted. I think the wicket had been helped as well because I'd keep wicket. I was the captain of the team. So when we won the toss, I'd always field first so that I could keep wicket and I'd get my eye in while I was keeping mm-hmm. wicket and then go out and open the bat from ball one, my, my eye was in. And so I had some really good scores. I, I made my first century when I was 13 or 14. And I think my top score in a 2020 evening league game was about 164, I think. Playing, I presume, with, with all different ages. And- well, I played, I played Guernsey under-18s when I was 15. So I kind of grew up playing... Only a year or two around, around my age. But the batting side of things, I found, came quite easy to me. Ian but Botham the, was my hero as, as a boy. Uh-huh. So Ian Botham was my Glenn Hoddle. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that's how I wanted to bat. I think if, if, you,
1: if you talk about cricketers for me, it would be Viv, Derek Randall at the time. Derek Randall was a brilliant fielder. yeah. So. I couldn't believe what he could do with it. And also, like we started a chat, like... Wherever he, whether he took his wicket, whether he came up with the ball and <laughs> playing with a smile, and uh, maybe to watch yeah, yeah. Him.
2: very much so. Very uh, like a comic book hero was uh, beefy, was just incredible. But then so are you if you think about it. When I, mean, I grew up watching reading Billy's Boots in whichever it was
1: it, yeah. there. <laughs> yeah. and, and Billy was at that stage I just thought this was just like made up it can't be true it turns out that <laughs> <laughs> there were people all over the big and the podcast series who were doing the same because Phil that was explaining to us how he was captain of England schoolboy playing against Australia yeah, was and he amazing. had to choose between yeah. blah 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 oh yeah he was at a much
2: higher level than I ever was well, it doesn't was.
1: sound like it so, we, uh, he, well,
2: did, I, I, did it, you have a choice at a stage personally I, I don't will, mean if I if I, I got offered obviously an apprenticeship at Southampton when I was six 16. Yeah. Had I not been offered an apprenticeship or had, after my apprenticeship, I'd been released, my next uh, attempt at a job would have been to have been a cricketer.
1: Hampshire?
2: Hampshire was my, my nearest county, so it would have been. I would have tried to have gone to
1: And then the little yeah. time you have as a professional, who did you
2: watch down at Hampshire that, that really struck you? that? Made Robin it Smith, was... down at Hampshire. Watching him, I think, was another type of bravery, I suppose, watching Robin... Because of the way he batted? Because of the way he batted, he was kind of real, quite aggressive, quite mm. swashbuckling. And, uh, you know, he was a guy that would stand there, uh, you know, watch him bat against the West Indian fast bowlers of that era, which were just, I dread to think what it was like facing those boys. But he was doing it and he'd take them on. You know, yeah, just, I think watching Robin Smith square cut a ball off of a 90-mile-an-hour delivery was, was something.
0: so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
1: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
2: You're pretty special.
1: I'm speculating here, but having watched your enjoyment of the spotlight and you're dealing with pressure, mm. had you progressed your cricket, I think you'd have probably tried at least to treat the West Indian bowling
2: in that way. Oh, I would have had a go yeah I would have had a go. That was kind of the way I was as a sportsman. Any kind of sport that I took on I wanted to do it but I wanted to do it in style I didn't just want to be okay at it. I wanted to do something that people would go oh even now I can you know I'll be a table tennis room with, with my mates and we'd rally for a few shots and, all, and then I'd have to try to the. <laughs> top spin for and then the, the flick and I just I just wanted to do everything with a bit of panache really Life's for enjoying Absolutely uh,
1: um, If you can encapsulate a little bit about um, a childhood and a young adult who spent on your island what would people not realise that it was like and what, why, why was it such a central part of your character?
2: Uh, I think probably what people wouldn't realise was probably the, the laid back nature of growing up on an island like Guernsey mm-hmm. and pff, it was very carefree I think looking back now I didn't realize how lucky I was to have grown up where I did at the time you kind of took it for granted because you didn't know any different no but from from that I spoke to at my age who grew up in England when I'm telling them what my childhood was like they were we go from, what really so you, you know you'd just be left that I'd be you know in the summer holidays school summer holidays you know we'd be left to our own devices for the day Mum and dad go off to work Spend the time on the beach, down the playing fields of a, a local school, and you kind of just knew when it was tea time. You just rocked back home at tea time. Mum mm-hmm. and dad were never worried. You were always, you were always kind of there or thereabouts. I don't remember locking doors when we were, when we were kids. You kind of your, door, your back door was always open. Even to this day, actually, I still see in Guernsey the honesty boxes on the side of the road. People selling things on the on the hedges outside their house, and they'll have the, the little tin that you stick the money in. I just kind of don't see that very much over here anymore. A sense of community? would, would... Oh, very much so. Uh, a, a very tight-knit community. Everybody knew everybody. I think uh, I, I came from a big family. So I, I had three brothers, but I also... Uh, my mum came from, from a big family. My, my grandparents who are still alive now. My granddad's 96 now. He had double digits... Siblings, my grand who's ninety one still going she had double digit siblings, mm-hmm. so there was always a massive sense of of family around you know some some fantastic Christmases spent with everybody at my grand's house and everyone feeding there for my grand it was just would turn up and it was just a, a lovely way. I mean, my my grand lived, so i kind of I lived on an estate at the bottom of my estate was my school, mm-hmm. and the other side of my school was my grand's house mm-hmm. so it was kind of i lived within about a six hundred yard radius and my mum Uh, my local club Val Rec who I played for was probably about maybe a mile and a half from my house and that was kind of where I lived
1: When we were up and meeting um, Phil Neville one of the interviews that was going on at the same time was with Henry Winter and Nicky Butt and Nicky recently the interview came out with Nicky saying listen kids need to climb trees and fall out of them and Kids don't do what I did there and it's changed everybody's outlook that they can't take risks and everybody's cosseted and yeah. they don't know how to deal with problems and whatever. Please, everybody else in my life does. <laughs> Slap me when I'm being fanciful. But <laughs> when you live a life like you've, an Enid blighted childhood like you've just described, does it also give you an assuredness about taking risks? A feeling that life is a little bit about creativity and adventure?
2: Yeah, I think I think very much so. I think my my parents also were obviously very supportive in, in what I was trying to do in the football field, but they were also kind of uh, very supportive in terms of of me being a bit different mm-hmm. when I was playing sports. And you know, I tried things on a football pitch, and I never I never once remember my mum mother, dad going, "Why didn't you Why didn't you pass to that guy there instead of trying dribbling pass those three blokes?" I never once had that from them. They kind of just let me go out and do what I was doing and because I was enjoying it I loved it it was just fantastic and they were always so supportive and also I also had aunties, uncles, grandparents who were also incredibly supportive Would
1: they snip at you if you were sent off or
0: booked? Uh,
2: for for, for I, nipping I at the referees what I mean Yeah I did get reprimanded on occasions <laughs> by, uh, by referees my schoolmaster once had to take me back to my mum after one particular game when I wasn't particularly enamoured with the referee from the other school <laughs> that we'd just played. and he so you, you felt you'd been cheated, didn't you? I knew we'd been cheated. <laughs> and I was telling my mates about it uh, as we were walking off the pitch and it was just happened to be within earshot of my school teacher. He didn't like what I'd said about the uh, opposing referee, so he thought that it was <laughs> worthy of uh, me and driv- being driven back to my house and, uh, and him sitting me down in front of my mum and telling my mum what I'd just said about this teacher. You, um... <laughs> caused us to have, we've got, we've got a
1: big audience, something like three and a half million people who have listened to us so far, but we've got a band of people who subscribe to us and we said to them, would you like to send in some questions? We were deluged, like we've never been deluged before. There was one question, which Neil tested me today, you, you won't have to guess <laughs> about the one question, and we'll get to it hopefully in a slightly different way, but there was a really good one here from Grey Harding. And I'll read it out. He said there are numerous occasions when Tis, if you don't mind, yep. made the hair stand up on the back of my neck and caused such raw emotion that I wanted to burst into tears of joy. Mm-hmm. What I'd like to know is whether Matt had any stand-up moment of emotion whilst he was playing or was it after scoring one of his worldly goals. The emotion of one of our many great escapes, assisting Franny Benali to score his one and only Saints goal, mm-hmm. or, and the one I want to focus on more than anything, scoring the final goal... At the Dell mm. Now, it's your story, I'll let you tell it But I've got <laughs> a supplementary about that goal. First of all, I know I've jumped a huge amount But we like to get the readers' questions in The Dell is, is going to be no more It's Arsenal, last ever game Set the scene if you,
2: if you don't mind Yeah, so that particular season 2000-2001, I'd, I'd spent a lot of that season injured You know, The season was drawing to a close I think Arsenal had I think they'd already won the title that year They'd come second to Manchester United. We'd beaten Manchester United a couple of weeks before. United and Arsenal finished first and second. So Arsenal came to us on the last day of the season. i just managed to get myself free from injury. I'd been out quite a few weeks. The manager at the time, Stuart Gray, came to me on the Tuesday of the game and he said to me, you're going to be substitute on Saturday and I'll guarantee you, for what you've done uh, for this football club, I'm going to guarantee you that at the end of that game you're going to be on the pitch, because you deserve to be. So that was on the Tuesday, and I went to bed every night that week knowing that I was going to be on the pitch and dreaming of scoring the last goal at Dell.
1: This is what I was going to ask you then, because Grey wanted to know what stood out for you amongst all the memories, and I guess that that must be there or thereabouts as the number one.
2: I think in terms of raw emotion... Even when I talk about it now, I can feel myself getting a little bit choked up about it. Good. Um, because it was kind of... I, I think I just wanted... I felt like it was my destiny to score the last goal at that stadium after all that we'd done to, to kind of get us away from it.
1: It's a bit spookier on the same wavelength as me. That's what I want to know about because what correlation is there? So we've, we're taking as read that this is a grown-up podcast and our audience is smart. You'd worked all your life for it. You're a very talented footballer. There were things about that goal which... Are natural because you'd worked for them and earned them. Hmm. You're good at scoring, you handled pressure well. What correlation is there between dreaming about success, mm-hmm. visualizing success, getting yourself somehow? It's not quite what Gary Player and Jackie Stewart said about the, the more I practice, the luckier I get. It's not quite that. <laughs> no. There's some sort of, or is there destiny?
2: No, I think there is a, a definite correlation. I think if you're, I think your mind is so powerful that I think if you think about doing something enough in your mind when that moment comes in reality you actually know how to deal with that because you've gone through it already six or seven times in your mind before and you know what's happening so when that situation arises you don't freeze in the moment it's almost like going into a, a kind of a state of just complete calmness mm-hmm. and just letting everything flow mm-hmm. and I think that's Kind of, I've heard golfers talk about it a little bit. When they're in the zone, they're in that moment where they're just kind of the swing just flows, and they don't feel pressure. They're just in that zone, and everything just flows. And that was kind of what happened when that ball fell to me on the edge of the box. It wasn't an easy chance. If you put that ball down there in training, you know, I might have knocked it in that top corner once or twice out of ten, maybe. To those who haven't know, it seen it, to, it's it's late. So the ball it's was penalty area. It's yeah, I mean, it was the eighty eighth minute of the game. It stood two all, and the ball got kind of flicked back behind me. So I was having to swivel with my weak foot, uh, with my left foot, and uh, it was on the half volley and I've hit it sweet as anything and just flown into the top corner. It's, yeah. it's
1: our podcast. I, I'm not accepting Matt's description of his left foot as my weak foot. Let's, I'm interjecting <laughs> with
2: slightly non-preferred weaker. foot. <laughs> uh, I think the world would kill for The world a lot. would kill for having that. Well, that's the, that was another thing. <laughs> Going back to Glenn Hoddle, I watched Glenn Hoddle play and he was hitting these passes with his right feet and his left feet and he just looked completely natural on both sides. And I wasn't very good with my left foot as a kid. And I worked, And I, in fact, I spent... It was remarked upon when I went to Oxford as a kid, uh, about know that. 13 or 14. Right. You didn't read my book properly, did you? Uh, <laughs> so I went there as a Toma, kid. Toma, in Spanish, that's Toma. <laughs> there you go. And the guy that put me up was my dad's friend in Oxford. He actually said to me, he watched me play, and he said, uh, you know, you need to work on your foot a little bit. So I thought, right, well, the best way of doing that is for my next three games for my club and my school, I'm not going to kick the ball with my right foot. Mm-hmm. And I played three or four games only touching the ball with my left foot. And then I went out and practised and practised and, and it got
1: See, there's a brave Go back
2: innings. to theme there, there's a theme now.
1: There's an element of risk there because maybe you were so good that playing off your left foot you're never going to be dropped. But you're already aware that while you're learning on your left foot at that stage, when you're younger and... I think maybe criticism hurts more Or teammates saying What are you doing Hurts more Practising is an obvious thing But practising in a game There's an element of bravery And risk to, to take that decision About how to benefit your, your less preferred food
2: Yeah to a certain extent Although the, you know, the standard of football uh, In Guernsey Wasn't that great You were high enough up there I was okay. kind of high enough To be able to still affect a game By just playing with my left foot
1: you talked about golfers there and being in the zone because they 've visualized it done it it 's well established as part of sports science that there 's muscle memory mm-hmm. particularly I think for hand to ball sure is our mental muscle memory i think that you, i think in other words, you were talking about if you train if your mind your power of the the, the mind that you talked about is a very arresting thing for me and i 'm going to ask you now as well whether you think that if that perhaps isn 't one of the single most dominant flaws in English international football mm. over recent years because I have lived abroad and I, I see a different mentality like that in Germany and in Spain and in, and in France and what we're very good at is we've got an emotional power. Yes. <laughs> give us adversity, yeah. give us somebody we dislike and we're ferocious lions but mm. that, that thing that you were talking about... It...
2: I believe that there is something mentally not quite as good with us as there is with other, other nations and I think it's been kind of quite a while and I think it goes along with the the penalty shootout side of things as well Mm -hmm. I think we've been affected mentally by the fact we've lost a couple early on when the penalty shootouts became kind of normal behaviour and I think that's kind of got into people's psyche a little bit Uh, and I think we do disregard that side of things a little bit sometimes Uh, I think we neglect it a little bit and I think I think Sam Allardyce was talking about perhaps getting somebody in to work on that side of things. So it's kind of starting to change a little bit, but it's making sure we've got the right people in, I guess, who are going to teach the right things to these people.
1: And at the right stage. Mm -hmm. The best.
2: Yeah, I think by the time you kind of get to international football, it's difficult to kind of give that to people at that age.
1: We should be teaching people... 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, yeah.
2: little things like that. Yeah. yeah, very much so, very much so. I think we're, we're a little bit behind the eight ball in that respect. I think we've, we've taken too long to grasp the nettle. We're looking at doing it at, at the top end instead of actually going, hang on a minute, if we start down here, we won't have to do it up there mm-hmm. because in 10 years' time, these lads have already got that.
1: If if those who are going to win or not win tournaments for England over the next 10, 15, 20 years haven't been trained like that as as kids, although maybe some aspect of the culture of football is changing with mm. so many people having grown up watching Sky and, and being able to watch Spanish football and choose themselves like you did watching Hodle. OK, I'm, I'm hearing what my coach says, I'm hearing what the school says, but that's what I want to be able to do. I'm very hopeful that you can seed that in a culture and eventually mm. you, you get the flowers. First of all, if, if somebody asked you, would you go and help a squad, whether it be England or Southampton, deal with penalty taking as an art?
2: Uh, yeah, I would, yeah. Uh, I've actually, I was asked to go to Oxford at the start of last season. Dave Jones, who works at Sky, director at Oxford, was doing some some stuff with them. They'd missed about three or four penalties during pre-season and I think the first game of the season. Uh, and he just asked me if I'd go down and have a chat with the lads mm-hmm. and and explain what was going through my head, what my, my technique was on the penalties. And uh, so I said, yeah, no problem, I'm quite happy to do that. So uh, I went down there. I had a chat with the boys down there for this was on a Friday, before they went to play away. So I can't remember where they're playing on the Saturday. So I went down, had a chat for about fifteen minutes, took a few penalties, explaining what I was thinking, what my logic was as to what how I took my penalties. So it was kind of you know, my first thought was always to to hit it into the keeper's left hand corner as a right footer because there's a little bit of an arc on the ball because you're not striking it straight. The arc takes it away from the goalkeeper a little bit you go the other way the angle's a little bit shallower gives the keeper a bit more chance so that was kind of where your starting point is my second point then is is I always keep my eye on the goalkeeper as long as I can if I see him going towards that corner because of my setup and because of the way my foot is when I'm going to hit the ball into the into that corner if I see the goalkeeper it's very easy at the last minute I just whip my foot around the ball and it takes him to the other corner and so these are the things that I was kind of explaining to the Oxford boys so the one thing I never did was hit a penalty down the middle. So I don't don't agree with the penalties down the middle. You should be able to side foot the ball quite powerfully into either one of the corners and that gives you the most chance to score a penalty. And that was how I left it. And I was watching soccer like well I was on Soccer Saturday the following day. And it comes up from the Oxford game and it was Kimar Roof Kemar Roof missed a penalty. I was like, oh. no. I told Jeff that I'd gone to Oxford the day before as well and had a chat with the lads about the penalties. So, uh, so you've missed the penalties. I was on the, when I got off the show, uh, I rang up Dave Jones and I went, Dave, I said, what happened? Come on. He said, Matt, he said, I can't tell you how sorry I am. You were brilliant yesterday. Kemar Roof hit the penalty straight down the middle and the goalkeeper saved it. And I went, thank God for that. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and it was like uh, so he didn't take the next penalty. Somebody else started taking the penalties, and they scored a few doing the. But you couldn't you couldn't
1: make this up because football. I don't know if life is the same. Ordinary working life is the same, but football is full of people who who maybe are given like you said. I was given that given some sort of ability, whether it's athletic or footballing or whatever. But don't listen or don't think or mm. know better. <laughs> the, 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 the history of football is rife with that.
2: Yeah, and that's why when when I get asked. I often get asked, you know, Dad will say to me, Oh, young lad, if he wants to be a footballer, what advice would you give him? And I always say to the kid, always listen to the people who have been where mm-hmm. you want to go to. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's the only advice I'll give them. And you're right, the people just, they don't, they... I guess, to a certain extent, I maybe have been like that when I was a kid. I kind of thought I knew better bit cocky, yeah, whatever, you're old now, Don't. don't we're going to listen to you. Fortunately, at that age, it turns out you <laughs> did.
1: Um, I'm not being cheeky, but uh, this podcast wouldn't be successful if I didn't give vent to my curiosity. Yeah, of course. You've described your penalty technique really well there, but I'm genuinely curious as if the, there was a psychological thing about the penalties for you too, because there's a really arresting phrase in, in your book, really arresting phrase about the adrenaline of... And the sense of triumph in in fighting relegation and winning. Mm. You you have got very little problem with admitting that in penalties you, you savoured the spotlight and you wanted to be the hero. I did. And at one, I think it's interesting. And two, I really like like people hammer Cristiano Ronaldo all the time, and I, it, it drives me nuts because one of the things is that he's brave enough to say. I want the Ballon d'Or. I want to win the Champions League. And he says, "I want to be regarded as the greatest football ever." And he, he probably doesn't deserve to achieve that. Probably won't. But boy, I, I love the fact that she's he's like, to,
2: "Yeah, she's got to love the ball." "This is what I'm after. This is what I'm
1: after." Why should you be? But you, you genuinely, you know, like the, the attention and the focus and the scoring and the and the joy of being the hero.
2: I, I think the feeling when a penalty kick was given, especially at home, because obviously you, you then got ninety-five percent of the stadium that are going to go nuts if you score so when the penalty was given it kind of it was like butterflies would go in the stomach it was like oh brilliant this is my chance you know it's the easiest chance i'm going to get to score a goal all game and then as you say the psychological part of things the, the mental side of things for me was eradicating all negative thoughts out of your out of your head so i would then once the penalty had been given you get the butterflies get hold of the ball put the ball down on the spot and you kind of walk back and I'm, all the time I'm just imagining the stadium just about to erupt and, and the joy on everyone's faces when this ball hits the back of the net so as I step up to the penalty This is all in your mind in mental pictures All this pictures. is going through my mind hmm. and it's all positive mm-hmm. Everything that's going through my head is, is all positive and I think that's kind of the, one, the penalty that I missed <laughs> obviously because I was so positive and because I just thought I was going to score every penalty I ever took. the penalty that, that was saved that Mark Crossley saved the, the rebound because he's parried it straight back out to me the rebound. I should have. See,
1: I, I think you're ignoring your own teaching there because there's a guy on the pen, edge of the penalty box, Nigel Clough who's visualising, I'm going to kick this, I'm going to stop him from, when this rebound comes out, I'm going to get in there, because he chases you like a, <laughs> like a terrier after a tennis ball, he does, but he it, gets there and he puts you off.
2: I think he, he, I mean, he was quite close to me, but I, it was still a simple chance, and I shouldn't have you
1: have yourself all your life for that one penalty. You're going to have to let this go, <laughs> psychologically, let me
2: tell you, from so my heart. The, I, I was more disappointed that I missed the rebound than I did actually, that the penalty was safe. I've heard you say that before, and I'm, I'm not, I'm not you're, you're taking some credit away from young Nigel.
1: Let let him have his moment. Ed. It's not about my O'Slate. Yeah,
2: yeah. you know. I didn't not, really see him to
1: be honest. Uh, listeners, Matt is not <laughs> even interested in even playing with the thought. Eh? That's what that's what defines a winner. There you go. The big interview is produced by Backpage and by me, Graham Hunter. Thanks as always to Beer Jacket for the music. Please don't keep up to date with everything that we're doing at grahamhunter.tv. TV, but sign up. It's free. There's a little box for your email address and it means that you won't miss an episode. Never mind all the podcast apps that you've got. I'm undercast, overcast, Wombling Free, whatever it might be. Sign up with us and we send you the podcast every time it comes out. And we tell you about little pieces of news and we allow you to get your questions to us for the guests as we announce them. There's a newsletter. It'll keep you informed with everything that The Big Interview's doing. We're on Facebook. Look for The Big Interview. We're at GH Podcast on Twitter and Instagram. Please keep in touch. Let us know what you think. We do this for you, not just for ourselves, although, damn it, we do enjoy it. Thanks for being there. Bye.